0: This is the InFocus podcast from The Hindu.
1: And welcome to the Hindus in focus podcast, which brings you the latest in news and views from around the world. I'm Narayan Lakshman, associate editor at the Hindu, and I'll be your host for this episode. As the world stumbles through a second year of the COVID-19 pandemic, it is clear that both its catastrophic toll on human life and the severe socioeconomic dislocation that it has caused matter equally. Yet, it is also becoming clear that there's a growing inequality associated with governments and private citizens' responses to the pandemic, whether it's in terms of access to vaccines or public policy measures to support the most vulnerable sections. It is in this context that the work of Professor Branko Milanovic of the Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequality at the City University of New York and former lead economist in the World Bank's research department for almost 20 years matters ever more, especially his study of the relationship between inequality and different forms of capitalism across the world. Uh, so thank you for being here, Professor Milanovic, and for joining us on the InFocus podcast.
0: Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure.
1: So you have for decades studied capitalism closely, for example, analyzing its subtypes, liberal and political capitalism, in your 2019 book, Capitalism Alone. Now, the pandemic has thrown some of its features into relief sharply. How would you describe the way capitalist systems across the world have Mm -hmm. responded to this global crisis?
0: Yes, of course, you know, the the crisis was something that was not possible to predict. And when the book was published, uh, uh, that was before the the pandemic. Uh, But if I were to summarize now the situation, uh, and of course, we still have to take into account that we are not at the end of the pandemic. So we might still be in for surprises. And many of the summaries that have been made during the pandemic then later turned out to have been wrong. So, but as, as of now, I would say that both U.S. and China have played up to their strong suits and really have played very miserably in the areas where they were weak. Let me explain that. For China, uh, clearly China did a pretty bad job in the beginning, not because it did not uh, st- sort of uh, stop the pandemic immediately, but because a uh, political system in China is such that lower levels of uh, administrative units, in this particular case, the province of Hubei and the city of Wuhan, had an incentive to basically not reveal what was happening to the higher authorities, hoping that actually they would be somehow able to sort of push it you know, under the carpet and then nothing would happen. That, of course, prov- proved like a disastrous decision. And, of course, China had to face really... A huge issue, as we know, and and actually, then the good side of, of the Chinese system kicked in in the ability to have very strong centralized decision, to actually have disciplined population, to make draconian measures quickly, and to have everybody or most mostly everybody agree to that. You know, the decisions, as you know, were draconian. You know, people people's apartments have been uh, sealed; they were not allowed to go out. Whole areas were actually not only under lockdown, like actually even, the you know, uh, not allowed to get out of the apartments, like a really like tough lockdown, almost like home imprisonment. But the results were excellent. Absolutely, you know, brilliant. So these are the two sides. Now, when you come to the U.S., There you have also two sides. First of all, the negative side was the total disarray, which is not only due to the Trump administration, but general uh, inability to impose any measures, uh, sniping between different levels of, um, of government, whether it is state government, county government, You know, I was in Washington, D.C., and then I was in New York, and I was in California, and they were everywhere. You had different counties that would make different decisions. And then, of course, if, um, you know, a shop owner and a restaurant owner in one county sees that actually all the customers are going to to that county, and then he himself is, like, supposed to be closed, obviously he's not going to be happy. So that was really a disarray, and that's why the U.S. still has the highest number of deaths and, uh, I think, cases as well. But then on the other hand, the technology of the United States and the Western world, actually Western Europe kicked in and uh, the success in vaccines was absolutely extraordinary. That's never been the case that in 12 months we have actually developed a vaccine for an entirely new disease. And uh, the rollout of the vaccines in the U.S. was quite quite successful. So I think on technological side, uh, the West has shown its sort of advantages On the um, organizational side, uh, China, political capitalism have shown their advantages.
1: Okay, that's a very interesting way to break it up, and we'll come back to that. But I also want to now take a look at India, where global trends in inequality have been starkly manifested in the country's push for the COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, Vaccine shortages have hobbled India's battle against the coronavirus with deadly consequences during the second wave, which just now seems to be ebbing uh, partially. Uh, is this a case of domestic inequality getting exacerbated by global inequality or global balance of power?
0: You know, India's case, I, I mean, so glad that you brought it up, but we have to be a little bit careful. Let me just put it like that. If we had this uh, conversation in February, India was actually considered a success case cert, uh, compared to the expectations, which were actually quite dire for India especially taking into account what happened in 1918 and uh, the fact that it's an enormous country, that there are many people, people live in a huge proximity and density. The results were actually quite good. On top of that, India was the largest producer of vaccines. So in that idea that Biden had with India, Australia, and the US, India was the key player because it was the only country at that time who could export vaccines. The US didn't want to export, Australia didn't have them. So India was absolutely a key player. So if we had this conversation in February, we would have said, look, India has done so much better than expected. Well, that's the issue with the virus. The virus is actually sort of playing games with us, essentially. You know, and then whatever you say now, like three months later, it turns out that you've been half wrong. And then, of course, now the situation in India, now it's improving. But, you know, it was, of course, as as you mentioned, disastrous, like only months ago. And... uh, then it seems to us now logical to emphasise all these other issues, including inequality, including the fact actually that even when it comes to inequality in India, we have a steadily deteriorating data. Actually, I worked with Indian uh, data, and now with the uh, latest 2018 uh, uh, I mean uh, uh, NSS national uh, sample survey scandal, which was then released and withdrawn and so on leaked. so we really have even fewer data. But now, of course, it, it could be said, of course, that disregard by the government of the dangers of, as we have, of course, read, of the dangers of the virus coming back. And maybe the disregard by the people, because the people believe that basically the virus is something behind them, uh, then led to the catastrophe that we have witnessed in the last two months. So I would say, yes, all of these elements have played uh, against India and actually exacerbating the weaknesses. But I should just kind of, how should I say, warn people not to be too ready to jump to conclusions because our conclusions that seem reasonable at uh, time t then seem much less reasonable at time t plus one.
1: Uh, Fair enough. Um, I think I was also alluding to the fact that uh, the vaccines, you know, while Pfizer and Moderna's the mRNA vaccines are seen as cutting edge and they've been largely deployed in the US and parts of Europe and the UK. Um, India has not had that. Now, there are multiple reasons for that. One of them being we don't have the cold chain, uh, cold storage chain, uh, you know, supply chains and so on to actually deliver it at the ground level successfully. But the other is that uh, there is a feeling that such a, these vaccines were just not made available, which is why my question to you was, do you feel that there is a global politics of vaccines? Oh, yes. uh, And, you know, the Oxford, AstraZeneca vaccine has been made available because of the Serum Institute partnership as a producer, but uh, that may not be the vaccine for the future.
0: Right, you're actually alluding to the fact that uh, the, the two vaccines, which of course use the new technology, have not been available in India. Yeah. Well, this, of course, is the result, I mean, obviously, of what is called the vaccine nationalism and uh, the U.S., of course, in particular, but also to much less extent but the U.K., actually, the U.S. and the U.K. and to much less extent Europe, which I understand Europe has actually exported quite a lot of the vaccines, uh, have uh, decided that they are not going to export vaccines until they have finished vaccination at home. You know, this is an extremely difficult issue. I mean, first of all, uh, it does show that the talk about, uh, we often talk about cosmopolitan ab- approaches, and then is equal, and then we all care about each individual equally. It, it has clearly been shown to be wrong. In other words, we clearly care about people with whom we are close, and the governments care about their citizens, number one. Not necessarily because they like their citizens as such, but because they depend on these citizens. So clearly the U.S. government is not going to support somebody else and then lose domestic support at home and then be accused of actually sending vaccines outside of the country. So in a political sense, I I fully understand it. I have to say I was a beneficiary of that because I got, for example, vaccinated in the U.S. pretty early. But we have to realize that um, lots of our talk is really made, uh, how should I say, shown false by this. Like our talk about, you know, equality, equal treatment, uh, our cosmopolitan attitudes and so on. I know, for example, there was a think tank in Washington that has been actually talking about that the whole time. And you you can read about this and then you see the reality and you see, well, these two things really don't meet. And so we actually have to recognize that. As I said, I cannot go and... uh, Easily attack the governments for doing that, but we have to recognize what they have done in the case of emergency. Okay,
1: uh, and staying on India, when last year the first wave happened, India was actually you know credited with having one of the world's strictest lockdowns and being yes. quite quick to implement it. Um, at the same time, that led to a massive migration of the urban poor and informal labor force to the hinterland to the countryside. Now This, when the second wave has hit so badly and had a high human, high high toll on human life, do you think uh, India is also going to, should be doing, is it doing enough maybe to focus on the economic and livelihood side of things, maybe by providing welfare measures to support those who face these economic shocks?
0: You know, I don't know the the situation in India well enough, but uh, clearly India has a, (coughs) excuse me, has a problem which is different and deeper than the problem that the rich countries have. You know, rich countries have been able, like the United States and and Europe, have been able to go through massive uh, stimulus packages and the support packages, which have never seen which have never been seen in history, you know, the US actually has gone up to, I think, up to almost 25% of GDP, if you take all three different packages that have been delivered. That's beyond anybody's belief. I mean, it's, it's no, there is no comparison with, uh, in terms of size, with the global financial crisis. It is much more difficult for countries that do not have resources like that. Indeed, India could have printed. money. But then, of course, you have other issues that you have to face. Secondly, the population, and particularly a poor population in India, is is huge. So I'm not sure, actually, and this is really not something that I could say much about what the Indian government should have done. Uh, I suppose that that there was always this issue of trade-off. Although, it is also true, and it was, I think, pointed out from the very early on, and I was very much in favor of that, that the lockdowns are not really a trade-off in the sense that the lockdowns were saving lives and enabling relatively fast return to economic activity. So, you know, I'm not sure that, that there was actually a trade-off. There is a trade-off, you know, say on a daily basis, but if you maybe extend it to one month or two months, I think the trade-off disappears. I think the worst seems to be, it seems to be having a, a lockdown, not pushing it long enough. And actually that was my criticism for Europe, is that impatience of Europe and then going through another wave, and then have yet another lockdown, and then going through another wave, and then it's really it seemed to me that was the worst possible uh, approach.
1: Okay, and uh, you know, looking at India, but even beyond at other countries, uh, you know, the, there's a damn uh, the consequences of the lockdowns and the pandemic have been felt in areas such as you know education and healthcare, yeah. obviously, uh, where you know work from home or school from home has had a uneven impact depending on which cohort of the population you're looking at. So the middle class and the upper the elites have done better even in terms of education whereas if you think of let's say the lives of uh, you know school children from the poorer class in a rural setting there's been literally no infrastructure to support school from home so what do you think nations can do to address this especially developing countries
0: yeah i would totally agree this is really in that sense particularly for the educational part first of all of course huge difference in mortality rates by income categories uh, partly because of the economic reasons, that actually people who had to work, uh, they had to be physically present at their work, and uh, you know, in order to to earn money to at least survive, and then there are others who were actually able to do the work from home. So that's a big difference in mortality and morbidity among these two categories. But then one which actually I think is really striking, and uh, I, I have to say I feel particularly bad about that. Is educational. Educational at many levels, not only that, that children who actually do not have access to internet and Wi-Fi would be actually totally left out, but it revealed even within children, within cohorts and groups, revealed so this inequality that would felt between themselves. Oh. Because you had classes where you have one-third of the kids who had, for example, access to internet and two-thirds who did not. You know, that kind of very sharp inequality at young age, when you realize that you don't have something and that the other kids can actually, you know, go and then talk to either professors or other kids or their family is is a very, uh, how should I say, it's a very striking thing, which might actually leave uh, imprints for the entire life. And then on top of that, if you really lose one year or more of education, you're, of course, behind. Your cohort, which is a significant, uh, cha- I mean, change. I remember in my class when I was very young in elementary school, uh, being a year behind was really a big difference because you learn quite a lot within that year. So I think that yes, I t- totally agree. It has really made the differences between uh, those who have and those who have don't have or who are poor uh, much sharper. And moreover, the worst part is actually it has projected these differences into the future that it would be really. Difficult to undo. Let me just compare with one more thing. Maybe it's interesting. We compare it with the Cultural Revolution. Cultural Revolution lasted longer, you know. And uh, but what was interesting in the Cultural Revolution is that. Uh, this this sharp uh, cut by income did not work in that case because very often it was the better off who actually ended up in the worst of positions. They were sent to the countryside. So the Cultural Revolution was a huge waste of resources because people didn't go to school between like Two and five, or even seven years, or but it did not have this um, uh, uh, inequality element because it actually affected more the richer kids than and then the poorer kids. Okay,
1: that's really interesting. Uh, and if we step a little bit back from the pandemic per se uh, to the big picture of capitalism in in India and in other parts of Asia, uh, in India, do do you think that? It is somewhere between what you talk about in your book as liberal capitalism, as the West of the West, and the political capitalism of China. Does India have attributes of both, and therefore will it face challenges both of inequality and corruption as it continues its journey?
0: Yeah, well, that's a very important question. I've been asked that question by several, um, uh, you know, journalists in India. Um, if you go back, if you go to what I write as a genesis of political capitalism, India does have certain similarities with what happened in China, Vietnam, Indonesia, and so forth, in the following way, that actually the, the, the parties, left-wing parties, and to some ex- obviously a Congress party, were pushed in the direction where they had to solve two problems. One is national independence, and the second one destroyed the institutions of feudalism, which of course very strong in India, uh, which were impeding progress. And I think that that uh, the the centrists of let's say bourgeois parties in India were pushed into that direction by the left wing parties. So well, India obviously did not become communist, but I think there was actually a push toward really that solution. I mean, it's not by accident that India had, you know, planning commissions, had really sort of very strong uh, uh, influence of the Soviet Union in the organization of of the economic sphere in terms of catch-up, because at that time it was believed that if you plan the economy, you will be able to grow faster. So that was a similarity, I think, which India had in the past. If you look at India today, of course, India is much closer to the liberal uh, Uh, capitalism because of this political system. But it is also true that under Modi, there are certain features that uh, really kind of make India, I'm not saying it's a hybrid situation, I would still classify India as a liberal capitalism, but, uh, you know, the, the general emphasis on growth disregard of certain uh, how should I say uh, democratic norms uh, does actually make India look uh, I'm not saying in between but there, and as a combination of the two systems so obviously uh, you know it's very difficult to put the percentages here and there but I think in both cases India is a is a, uh, there are similarities between India and forms of political capitalism okay.
1: Um, And again, in the big picture, you know, at the heart of uh, most forms of global capitalism are now these large, enormous corporations with transnational operations, uh, particularly in fields such as information technology, you know, the Silicon Valley giants, uh, healthcare, telecommunications, and so on. Uh, And there are discussions going on even right now about a global corporate minimum tax and uh, also efforts in different jurisdictions to tax digital services of these Silicon Valley companies. Uh, how do you see the influence of these massive entities impacting trends in global and even national inequality across countries?
0: Oh, 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 first, I would, I would say that I'm very much in favor of having this minimal taxation because it has been a problem you know, known for years that uh, companies were paying ridiculously low taxes and they were able to manipulate, as you know, their accounts. I remember, I think it was Starbucks who actually had all its profits being booked in Luxembourg, where they had one store, you know, so that the store has sold like 2 billion coffees in in a year to a population of half a million people. Uh, So that is really ways to really manipulate the data, which are to some extent extravagant. So this is a very good uh, development. Um, you know, I think that the corporations are, of course, very important and very powerful players. But as this example shows to us, when corporations are faced by a decisive action by the state, uh, they're they bound to lose. Uh, corporations are strong as long as the actual state is not decided to go after them. But if the state is decided, and whether it is in political capitalism, as in, we have seen with the Jack mine and Ant, or even in liberal capitalism, if the U.S. Mono- anti-monopoly commission and anti-monopoly work goes after Google and Facebook, which might happen, uh, I, I have no doubt that the state would, would win. Uh, but the question is, of course, that these companies know that, and the companies have enormous power, and that power goes through the political process, lobbying and, you know, other ways in which that, that the power of the state is being eroded by the companies so that the power of the state may not be used against them. So I think that's where the struggle is. And that's why I think actually I personally come out very strong, as you know, in capitalism alone against this insidious power of rich individuals and obviously rich companies in affecting the state. Uh, because that's the, where, the, I think, in my opinion, where the, the key issue is. And that's why the minimal taxation took uh, probably more than 10 years, because the problem was known, uh, in my knowledge, for at least 10 to 15 years. So, But it took us 15 years to actually do something uh, relatively serious this time.
1: Okay, fantastic. And with that, we'll wrap up. Thank you, uh, Professor Milanovic, for joining us today.
0: Thank you very much. It is a pleasure. And then uh, thanks again for inviting me.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. And uh, to our listeners, you've been listening to the Hindus In Focus podcast. Thank you. And please tune in again for more on the latest news and views at The Hindu. Thank you. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.